The Cal Bears are playing the Yellow Jackets of Georgia Tech in the 1929 Rose Bowl. The game was a stalemate of, of solid defenses in the first half when Stumpy Thompson fumbled the ball for the Yellow Jackets. And the Bears, Roy Regal, reached down and picked up the ball. But as soon as he picked it up, he was hit so hard by a defender that he spun completely around. But there was amazement. Roy Regals did not fall down. He instead put his hand down, stayed himself, popped back up, and took off running as fast as he could. The wrong way. And he ran 65 yards at full speed the wrong direction. And as he's running backwards towards his own goal, all of the people in the stands, it was in California for heaven's sake, they're all yelling, no, stop, go, turn around. But he didn't pay attention. There were no defenders between him and that goalpost. And he was running as fast as he could to it. His, his teammates were screaming, Roy, Roy, stop, you're going the wrong way. But he didn't hear them. All he could see was that empty goal and kept running as fast as he could. Even his coaches were jumping out in the field, waving their hands. Stop, Roy, you're going the wrong way. But he didn't see it. And if it wasn't for Benny Long, the fastest player on the Cal team, who actually ran Roy Regals down from behind and tackled his own teammate on the five-yard line, well, he would have scored for the other team. <laughs> Everyone in the stadium knew Roy was going the wrong way. Both teams, all players, all fans, I think even the hot dog vendors probably stopped selling hot dogs that day to turn around and watch something that nobody had ever seen before, a man running full speed the complete wrong direction. Uh, there was no hiding this embarrassment. I mean, Roy knew it. He could hardly get the guy to go out in the second half and play. In fact, he did, and he played steadily in the second half, but, but it was clear. Everyone knew he had made a colossal blunder. He was going the wrong way. You know, there are times in life where things are crystal clear, where right and wrong are about as self-evident as anything can be. I mean, like in football, they even take you at the beginning of the game, and they put you in the, in the middle of the field and they say, look, you're going this way and you guys are going this way. And Roy and Dallery had been part of that little learning experience. But he still ran the wrong way. But there are other times, other times in life, when going the right direction maybe is not so clear. When, when the choice between right and wrong not so self-evident. I think that's what Robert Frost was talking about in his poem, the road less traveled. You perhaps remember it. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood, says Frost. He looks at, a, at two paths of life. And it's not so clear which way is the right way, which way is the wrong way, or even which way is the best way. There certainly is the popular way and the less popular way. And Frost in the poem says, I decided to take the road less traveled. He goes on at the end of it, of course, and says, and that's made all the difference. As if in gratitude, thankful that the Lord had given him the, the grace to travel the, the hard road. Sometimes choices are clear. Other times, not so much. And I think that's what we have in the text before us today in John's Gospel. Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. And he stands before Pilate, he's on trial. He's in fact on trial for his life. 
This is a capital crime that he's accused of. And he, he should be defending himself, but he doesn't. He doesn't accuse others, even though he could have. He's been railroaded and pushed into this place, and, and for no fault of his own. But he doesn't try to save himself. He doesn't try to explain himself. He doesn't try to defend himself. He merely places his life in the pilot's hands. And offers him the option to make a decision. And, and, and he does do one more thing. He explains to Pilate why his behavior is so odd. Why he seems to be doing the wrong thing. I mean, think of any of us. If we're on trial for our lives, we would do exactly what you should do. We would plead. We would beg. We would find the right people, the best people to defend us. I mean, it would be all that we could. We'd pull out all the stops to save our lives. But not so with Jesus. He only says to Pilate, the way I'm not defending myself, the reason I'm acting in all the wrong ways, is because my kingdom is not from this world. You see, because my kingdom is not from this world, I don't play by your rules. I've in fact given myself fully over to God. My kingdom is not from this world, and therefore my servants, you see, they would be fighting if it were. They would be defending me. They would be trying to, to do all their power to stop you from doing any harm to me. But you know what? I'm going to willing, I'll be willing to risk misunderstanding. I'm willing to look like I'm doing the wrong thing because I serve the Almighty. Well, I, I can't go But I'm not living this world. I'm not living according to the rules of this world. I'm going to do things that might seem wrong to you. And in fact, I think to, John, to Jesus' friends, to John himself even, why did he not defend himself? Why is he going, as it were, the wrong way? Well, it may seem foolish to us, but living according to God's standards often looks foolish in the world, doesn't it? And there's many ways in which we can follow the Lord and sometimes see, be seen foolish to our friends. Today is Christ the King Sunday. It's also the Sunday before Thanksgiving. A time where we, we reflect on, on being thankful, but also a time to recognize that Christ is in fact king over all the earth. And he's our king. Specifically, those of us who are following Jesus have decided to live in ways that often seem wrong-headed in this world. And a couple ways that I want to touch on that I think that, that we, as followers of Jesus, often look like we're going the wrong way. The first is in the use of our time. The way that we use our time seems really weird to a lot of people. For instance, the Lord expects us to, to give us, to give Him rather, all of our time. He wants our, our first thoughts in the morning. He wants our last thoughts at night. And He kind of wants to be invaded all parts of the in-between. The, the Lord wants our time. He wants us to be reflecting upon Him morning, noon, and night. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be in church every hour, every moment of the day. It doesn't mean that we need to be walking around with a Bible in our hand everywhere we go. It means, though, that our thoughts are directed towards the Lord. That's why we have morning prayer, evening prayer. We, we have a tradition that goes deep into the history of the church about using our time and beginning and ending our days reflecting upon God and His work in our lives. The Lord also offers us a commandment. That deals with our time. Six days are you to work and do all your labor. But the seventh is the Sabbath unto the Lord. On it you shall not work. 
either you or your servants or anybody else in your household. So the commandment says, the commandment is not for God. It is not for us to say, okay, um, the Lord needs a day off from us. It's rather a gift to us. And if we set aside part of our week, uh, one-seventh of our week, that, that God actually does something and improves the quality of our lives. It improves our relationship with Him. You know, my first job I had as a cashier, first real job I had as a cashier at, at the Big Bear grocery store. It was a great job. All my friends had jobs working in, you know, uh, restaurants and they came home smelling like french fries, but not me. I got work with a, with a shirt and tie. I was clean and happy. It was, it, and in fact, I usually made a little more money than them. So it was, it was really a great first job. But you know, I found something out when I was 17 and had this first job, and that was that somebody else wrote my schedule for me. They actually told me when I was expected to be there. And they expected me to be at my station on time. If my shift was from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock, I had better be clocked in at 5.55 and ready to go to work at 6 o'clock. They told me not only what shifts I'd be working, but what days I'd be working and what days I had off. They were spot on about the way I used my time. In fact, when I was working and on the clock, they would tell me that if I wasn't working hard, if I was being lazy and trying to not be work, that I was stealing from them. And so they expected me to work the whole time that I was on the clock. They cared about the way I spent my time. And most of our jobs still do, don't they? How much more than the way that we use our time with the Lord? That He cares about our time. He's given us the same amount, every one of us, 24 hours a day. Every one of us has exactly the same amount of time. And He expects us to use it in ways that are different than this world. My kingdom is not from this world. If it were, then my servants would use their time the same way everyone else does. But I have a different way for them to use their time. I also have a different way for them to use their talents. We've all been given talents. You might think you haven't, but you have. We all have talents. You might think you have a lot more than other people, and you probably do. But we all have something to give. We all have talents to use in this world. And, and most of the people in our world view their talents as commodities, things to be bought and sold. I think the real difference for the pe people of God is this, that our talents, our gifts, are not given for ourselves. They're not, we are given a gift, a, a gift, a talent, so that we can be happy about ourselves. Oh my, look what I can do. I can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. It's not about what we can do for ourselves. Our talents are given to us for others. Nothing, I think, is more antithetical to Christian life than the star on the performer's dressing room door. <laughs> we, we're, we might be stars for one another, but none of us are stars in of ourselves. And the whole, the whole, whole culture of performance and, and uh, celebrity, it's okay that somebody likes you. There's a lot of people like you. And even if you were famous, but the time that you begin to believe that your fame, that your notoriety, is something that you have to, uh, to use as a commodity, well, then it's completely going to your head, hasn't it? Uh, some friends of mine, uh, some students actually, are down in New Orleans. They just got back, I think, yesterday. And, uh, and they're, they're theological students. They're at the, this uh, conference, the Evangelical Theological Society. 
And so I make all my students read these books from, um, from a particular author that they usually have to read. Uh, N.T. Wright, he's the Bishop of Durham, um, has written scores of books and uh, is brilliant beyond measure. He is to this century what C.S. Lewis was to the last. And so if you haven't read any Bishop Wright, N.T. Wright, you should, you should take some time and read, read this. It's, it's, it's good stuff. My students are in a coffee shop in New Orleans. This doesn't say it's not. And they're in this coffee shop. And, uh, and they look over, and who do you believe that they see sitting there at, at a table having a cup of coffee with Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, the most prolific Christian author in the, in the, uh, in the Western world. And so they bust up their courage, and they go over and they say to, to, to Tom Wright, they say, could we get a photo with you? And they, they text me back calling and said, you wouldn't believe how, how gracious he was, how generous he was. And he even joked with us and talked a while and said, you may not want to have a picture with me. People might think you're a heretic or something. You know, and, and just enjoy these young men from a podunk college in nowhere Ohio that had nothing to offer him and none notoriety to give him. But he took time set aside the conversation he was having and enjoyed their fellowship. Why? Because his gifts and his talents are for him. And he knows that it's for the church and for the world. The way that we use our talents is different than the way our world uses their talents. But not about ways to make ourselves healthy, wealthy, and wise. But about ways that we give to make other people's lives better. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus said, my servants would be fighting. And I think he says, and they would be using their time differently. And they would be using their talents differently. And you know what's coming too, will you? And they would be using their treasures differently. If we were from this world, if this world were all that we had to live by, the way that we use our treasure would be completely different. We would use it just like our world uses it. We would hoard our resources in order to secure for ourselves necessities, luxuries, and a sense of security. Because let's face it, that's what money does for us. It buys food and, and drink and provides uh, cover over our heads and, and transportation and all the things that we need to get along in life. And it also provides a level of, of luxury within that. That we could um, live more comfortably, eat better, drive more securely, but also look to our future with less uncertainty. And all through the Gospels, Jesus says, this is not the way that we use money. At least not in the sense that we have to hold on to it and hoard it, lest we're fearful of losing those things. Everyone needs to eat. Everyone needs to be clothed. Everyone needs to have a roof over their head. Everyone needs transportation in our Western world. Everyone needs a sense of security. But Jesus says, I want that primarily to come, not from your bank account, but from your relationship to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They have all they want and more. So too shall you. If you trust me. In the Old Testament, um, the, uh, the people of Israel had um, had been portioned off land. There were, were 12 tribes, and land was given to these 12 tribes. Except for one. The tribe of Levi had no land. They were to serve as priests, as clergy to the people. And so they had no land. No way to grow crops, no way to raise livestock. And the Levites had to trust that God's people would tithe, would bring one-tenth of their, of their proceeds and give it to the, to the ministry, to, to provide for the Levites. The Levites had to learn to trust God, that he was going to provide for them. 
But also the people through this whole process of tithing also had to learn to trust God, didn't they? Because perhaps you've noticed this, I'm a, I'm a bit of an accountant myself, I can deal with more with 100% than I can with 90. <laughs> yeah, you, you see that, right? You can do more with 100%, but, but you can't trust more. The fact that we give gives us the opportunity to trust the Lord. It doesn't mean that we don't need the things we still need. We still need necessities. We still need food, clothing, shelter. We still need security. We still need to face the future. But we do it with confidence that when we give, God supplies all that we need. When I, we were first married, uh, my wife and I were in our, our first apartment. It was a lovely little apartment, well apportioned, but, but not fancy by any stretch of the imagination. Some family members came by and, and they were talking to us and, and they wanted to advise us. And they were well-meaning about that. And so they told us, you know, um, when you're doing your bills, you know, uh, does your church have any kind of expectation from you? We said, well, we don't have any expectation other than what we put on ourselves. Well, they said, well, that's good. But, you know, you should always make sure that, that you take care of all the things that you need. And, and then that you give from what's left over. And we thanked them for their advice. And we quickly ignored them. <laughs> Say, well, we decided early in our life, with not very much money at all, that if we could trust God with just a little bit, if we could trust Him first, that he would add to us everything else that was needed. If we took care of the Levites in our community, well then the Lord would, would provide all else that we need. And you know what? 20 years in counting, right? Hand. <laughs> again and again and again, he provides. Every time we've needed something, he's provided. You know, there's an old saying, you can't outgive God, and that is absolutely the truth. If he owns a cattle on a thousand hillside, what is it that we can we cannot trust him for? Give me the first part, the Lord says. Trust me with it. Read the Old Testament over and over and over again. Trust me with the first part, and I'll show you that I'm faithful in the rest. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would fight, and they would look a lot like everyone else. But it's not. In 1964, Jim Marshall, a graduate of the Ohio State University, who beat Michigan yesterday in the glorious figures, um, was, uh, did that come out? Um, he, Jim Marshall was playing for the Minnesota Vikings. And just like Roy Riggles, there was a fumble on the field. And Jim Marshall picked the ball up. And just like Roy Riggles, that hit so hard, he got spun around. And just like Roy Riggles took off running, this guy, 66 yards the wrong way. Unfortunately, nobody was fast enough to catch Jim as he uh, as he crossed the goal line. And in such a, a a state of glee and joy, he takes the football and chucks it into the into the stands and celebrates there as he just scored two points for the San Francisco 49ers, not his team. As he's running down the field, everyone knows he's going the wrong way. The coaches know he's going the wrong way. The players know he's going the wrong way. The, the, the people were waving their hands. I'm sure the hot dog vendors stopped selling hot dogs and watched Jim Marshall run the wrong way. Next day, Roy Riggles, 56 years old now, sends Jim Marshall a note. And it says simply, welcome to the club. <laughs> I want to encourage you. To run the wrong right way. Amen.